Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life, and I'm Katie Sewell. I'm a public radio professional. I've been in the business nearly 20 years, though I did do something a little different. A few years ago, I quit my job as the senior producer of a daily two-hour morning show, and I moved to Rome for a year. That's where this show began, as I bumbled my way through my first expat experience, alongside Tiffany Parks. Tiffany is my co-host. She's a childhood friend and an expat living in Rome for about 12 years. She's also a writer, with her first book, Midnight in the Piazza, coming out in March 2018. Well, now I'm back in Seattle, and Tiffany is still in Rome, and we're still exploring, and, well, if you're me at least, you're frequently struggling. This show is a journey. For all of you explorers of the world, traveling or living abroad, permanently or temporarily, reminiscing about when you lived in a different culture, or looking for the next chapter after getting home, I hope you enjoy our company and the international authors, journalists, and expats that join us as guests. If you've never heard the show before, I encourage you to go back to the beginning and come along for the whole journey. Or jump around as soon as you get a sense of things. Most of all, we're really glad you're here. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Hi, Tiffany. Welcome home. Thank you, and happy birthday. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Yes, I was gone in Hawaii, and Tiffany had, can I say which number birthday it was? No, don't say it. <laughs> if you don't say it, maybe it won't be true. <laughs> Are you going to be one of those women that's sensitive about your age as you get into middle age? I've been sensitive about my age since I was 17. Do you remember? <laughs> no. I have been. Ask Suzanne. I was so dreading turning 17. Why? I don't know. I don't know because I felt like 16 was like the perfect young, bashful, not bashful. I was never bashful. <laughs> bashful. <but laughs> 16 is the bashful age. I know. The charming, romantic, bashful age. You know what I mean? It was... In my mind, obviously, I don't believe this anymore, but in my mind at the time, 16 was like the perfect age. You know, you're young, you're fresh, you're on the verge of womanhood, but you're not quite there yet, you know. Just thought it was the perfect age. And I was really not happy to be turning 17. And then when I turned 18, that was even worse because I was like, I'm an adult now. I'm no longer a child. Because I had a, you know, unlike a lot of people, I had a really amazing childhood. And I didn't want it to be over. (laughs) (laughs) Like, as much as I wanted to, like, go out in the world and do exciting things. I wanted to be a kid for as long as possible. Right. So anyway, I think every year has been hard for me. 20 was hard because I was like, I'm not a teenager anymore. I'm like a 20 year old. I remember turning 24 and somebody asked me how old I was. And I was like, I'm in my early 20s. (laughs) And they're like, oh, I guess that means you're 24. (laughs) Because if you're in your early 20s, you don't say I'm in my early 20s. You just say I'm 22. Wow, that's so funny. I've always had a thing about my age and I don't want to go into it, but it's always been like a weird hang up of mine. Just, Just getting older. Yeah. Of course, it's a hang-up probably for everyone. I mean, no one wants to get old and lose their abilities. No, but not a lot of people dread turning 17 because they feel like they're old. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's (laughs) That's a little (laughs) extreme. I was extreme. (laughs) It's a bit extreme. A bit extreme. Yeah, Uh, yeah, no, it was a a great birthday and then... We'll just say it might be an even number and people who have listened to the show long enough will be able to figure it out. Yeah, it might be 24. It could be. 
It could be yeah, 24. Yeah, it could be 24. Yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. an even we've number. Established that I, and that's it's an even number. Saying. We've established that I'm at least 24. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know I've been living in Rome for 13 years. So yeah. either I came when I was 11. <laughs> <laughs> it was part of that idyllic childhood. Yes. Yes. Or I just, you know. Uh, I'm older than 24, but whatever. It doesn't matter. It does doesn't not matter. matter. And anyway, it was a big birthday, and Aurelio also had a birthday. Aurelio had a big birthday, also an even number. <laughs> so you can put the math together on that. Every, yes. <laughs> if you go back and listen to this show, <laughs> you will find an episode where I visit Rome when Tiffany gets her citizenship to Italy, and Aurelio has just been born in that episode. So Yeah. 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 So he turned two which is also crazy. I'm like, I have a two-year-old? Like, when did that happen? I still feel like I'm, like I just had a baby, kind of. <laughs> yeah, just imagine what it'll be like when he's 17 and taller than you. That'll be weird. Oh my gosh, he'll probably be taller than me by the time he's 11, but. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we have our birthdays very close, which at the time, you know, when I was expecting, I thought was really going to be really cool. But now that it's happened, it's kind of frustrating to, be planning his birthday party, but it's not even been my birthday yet. I'm like, do I plan a party? Because, you know, like like we've established, it was kind of a big birthday for me. And, um, you know, so I'm like, should I have a party? But then I'm planning his party, and I'm like, I really don't want to plan two parties in the same week. I just can't do it. So, um, so it is kind of annoying. So I feel bad for people who actually have their birthday on their kid's birthday. That must be really annoying. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. What did you do for your birthday? Anything? Um, Claudia and I went out. We actually went out twice. I got two outings out of it. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it was it was great. My birthday was on a Thursday, so we thought that we wouldn't really be able to do much that day, so we decided to go out the Saturday before. And we went to a really great restaurant, a vegetarian restaurant in Rome called Il Marguta. Amazing. Just absolutely amazing on Via Marguta, which is probably the most beautiful street in Rome. So that was really nice. And then Saturday, we thought we were just going to go out for drinks, but Aurelio ended up falling asleep early, surprisingly. So we went out a little bit earlier, and we ended up having a light dinner and drinks on a beautiful rooftop terrace in the center of the city with a gorgeous view. So, yeah. Yeah, I didn't end up having a party. Like I said, no, I couldn't deal with organizing two parties, but... um, but it was really, really nice. Yeah. Very, very nice birthday. Yeah, that sounds great. I should um, ask you, how do you spell the name of that restaurant? I can put a link on our website. Yeah, it's called Il Marguta, M-A-R-G-U-T-T-A. Okay. Like Via Marguta, which is, if you guys know your old films, that's the street where Gregory Peck's character lived in Roman Holiday. Oh, very nice. Yeah, and the, and the street kind of feels like it's stuck back in that time. It doesn't, when you walk down that street, it's kind of a hidden street. It's kind of difficult to find if you don't know it's there. It's sort of behind one of the main streets leading to Piazza di Spagna, but it's but it's kind of hidden behind it. And so it's very, very quiet. It's very clean. It's a pedestrian street, so there's no cars, there's no motorcycles, there's no clubs. It's just like a few restaurants and lots of art galleries, and it's just this beautiful little hidden pocket of the city that has kind of remained back in the Dolce Vita. It's pretty awesome. Oh, very nice. But what I want to talk about and hear about is your trip to Hawaii, of which I was very jealous of. I don't mind telling you. Well, I don't want to be one of those travel log people where I just tell you every single thing I did. And I didn't make any notes really about particular beaches I was on. And 
those kinds of things. The details for me always get a little whitewashed. But I will say that one of the things that really stood out to me on this trip was in the early part of the week, it was a family trip. So I was there with both of my sisters, their families, my parents, me. And Derek couldn't go because he was in class in Seattle, stuck going to class, couldn't go. So he had to stay home and lament the fact that he was not in Hawaii. And we definitely missed him. But so my basic plan in going was, of course, yes, spend some family time, play the games my sisters want to play, etc., etc. But I wanted to get up every single morning and do something like snorkeling, like start the day off face down in the water. That was my number one goal. And for the most part, I think... With the exception of one day, I think I did it every single day. It was one of those vacations, too, where we were all in this villa, one villa together. And so it would be easy to just sit around the house and swim in the pool and do that sort of thing. But every day, also, we were running from this beach to that beach. There was no structure in it. It wasn't like, on Tuesday, we're going to definitely do this. And Wednesday, that, that, that. with the exception of a boat trip I planned. Anyway... All this is to say that, you know how sometimes you're on vacation and you don't really know a place very well and it's completely unstructured? So you're just sort of going with the suggestion. Your, your brother-in-law says, how about we go here this day? And you're like, okay. And then another person's like, well, what if you go there that day? And you're like, all right. <laughs> and so on one of those days, we went to this cove to go snorkeling. Me, my brother-in-law, and my sister. And for whatever reason that morning, I maybe I hadn't eaten enough when I woke up and I was sort of hungry and the waves were choppy. And so when we were out swimming in this cove, it, uh, I just started feeling kind of seasick. And I don't usually get seasick, but the waves were like kind of fluffing me up and down really hard a lot of the time. And I just sort of started feeling like I needed to go to shore and sit for a minute and not be sick to my stomach, regardless of how cool the turtles were. <laughs> so I, I swam to shore and I got on shore, immediately felt better. And while I was waiting for them to get out of the water, I started just looking at these little tide pools that are in the lava rocks. Lots of black crabs, lots of little tiny skipper fish, you know, that sort of thing. Muddy mud skippers is what I always call them. I don't know what kind of fish they actually are. Okay. They're like the ones that look like they would clean the outside of the tank, you know, if you had an aquarium. Anyway, so they're in the shallows, little baby fish, little tiny versions of the tropical fish who are in these little pools learning to grow up, being as big a fish as they can be, but not in the open ocean. And I just happened to notice very randomly, I'm surprised actually still that I did notice it, this baby eel tucked into a little corner of this one tide pool. And he looked up at me, he had little black eyes, but ringed with yellow and he looks like, if you can pick a, picture a moray eel, he looks just like that, except he's the size of my pinky finger. Oh my gosh. And I looked him up and he, um, he was a snowflake moray eel. And they're kind of this confident, curious creature. So, well, if I walk, walk ahead, the fish might all scatter. He was in his little hole, just sort of tipping his head and looking up at me like this. <laughs> Looked down at him closer. He came out a little bit more opened up his mouth really wide to try to be threatening, you know, <laughs> and... They're scary when they do that. Yeah, but of course he's so little, like he's so little. He's so like, tiny. Yeah. It was kind of like funny, probably. He, yeah, I mean, it's cute. It's endearing. And, and I mean, he was so kind of confident and charming in his own right. And I don't know. It, it was an interesting thing because it was this largely ungrounded trip where I, I'm contemplating so many things. Like, 
moving to New Orleans, not having a real job, how the heck we're going to make this show financially sustainable. And I have all these like massive questions in my head. And somehow knowing, discovering where this little baby eel actually lives was, I don't know, settling in some way. Hmm. And so for the rest of the trip, every morning I would get up and I would go snorkeling with my brother-in-law or whatever and do that family activity. But I would find some time to leave, drive down to the same cove and go and sit with that baby eel for a little while. <laughs> this and is so Katie. Can I just I know. say, this is so Katie. <laughs> Textbook <I know>. Katie. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's so funny because one of the things that I often think about is that we, we think about the birds that go by our window or like the raccoon that's climbing your fence or rosy cheeked parakeets in Rome, that they're all just sort of these random creatures that go by, you know, like this Robin is just flies by and that's it, that they're sort of these random passings. But when you really think about it, the truth of the matter is, is all of those creatures live somewhere and more than likely the Robin that you see flying by or standing in your yard at night is probably the same one over and over again who lives somewhere nearby. That's you know? true. And I love thinking about that and somehow like going, this is this eel's house. Here I am, I'm back in Seattle and that baby eel is still in that little house. His little pool, he's still there. And until he's big enough, he will be there. Like until he's big enough to move on, that's where he's going to be. So... Just a detail. He's he's not like a very small eel. He's just a baby eel who's going to be big. He will be a he no. He a, will be a big eel one day. Yeah, he's just a baby. Okay, so where was the where was the mama? I don't know. Because I feel like in nature, usually the mama is near the baby. Well, or maybe I don't know. I don't know when it comes to fish. We should is there if there's any marine biologists listening. Well, I know uh, Nemo. I just know Nemo. That's in, I you know, know, but Nemo is fiction. <laughs> I'm kind of joking. That was kind of a joke, That's Katie. A, I know. I know. <laughs> Katie has Nemo never lost his ever family. got my. I just want to put out there that Katie has never ever got my sense of humor. After that is not how many, true. No, you don't get my sense of humor. I always make these jokes, like straight face jokes, and you always take them at full value. Well, you know, sarcasm doesn't work on the radio. It doesn't. Maybe that's no. It. So I have to play it <laughs> off. It doesn't. It. I, I've gotten like the most complaints I've ever gotten about stuff has been when we were being sarcastic and somebody took it for fact mm. on the radio. And then it became a running joke that sarcasm doesn't play on the radio and people didn't get that joke either. <laughs> I guess they, people <laughs> I need to know. see your eye, like your uh, your expression. Yeah. But, you know, we're on Skype, so you should be able to see me. I know, but they can't <laughs> see you. <laughs> but you're the one who didn't get the joke, and I bet you that they did. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So I, I don't anyway, know. This back eel, to the this baby eel. eel was big enough to be on his own, his own little crevice and... I don't know about the birth and life cycles of an eel. I haven't done the research yet, but I will look it up and find it out for you. No, you no, don't to. bother. He was a snowflake moray eel, so I can just go from there. But, okay. But one of these days, too, I was snorkeling actually my final morning in Hawaii, and I did see a snowflake moray eel out swimming while I was snorkeling, a bigger one. Oh. And that was a little bit more alarming. <laughs> They're scary. Say. Eels are scary. I had a close encounter with an eel. And I'll never forget it. I wouldn't call them scary, but I do want to hear about this close encounter with an eel. So do tell. I think I've told you. I feel like I've told the story on this podcast. So if I have, I apologize for repeating myself. I'll tell you the very, very brief version, which is I was scuba diving in Indonesia and I was kind of getting confident about it because I'd been doing it for several days. 
And we went on a micro dive. So like we're looking for the tiny, 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 tiny little creatures. And I'm basically like skimming along the surface of some big rock. There was hardly any life where we were. And I'm going along, I'm going along, and I'm looking for the tiny little porcelain crabs and stuff. And all of a sudden, there's a moray eel in my face, right in front of my face. And of course, it seems a little bit closer because of the mask that you wear. But it felt like he was going to bite my nose off, like it was that close. And he was, you know, doing the whole wide open mouth bearing of the teeth thing. And yeah, <laughs> I just like kind of backed away, but... <laughs> It was a very scary moment. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways. Who knew that we had so many eel stories? I have another <laughs> eel story. Okay. When I got certified in scuba diving, and maybe I've told this story on the podcast. You know, you do a hundred something episodes. After a while, you're like, I don't know what we've talked about. Anymore. Yeah. But I was getting certified for scuba diving and my scuba teacher was explaining all of the tests that we were going to have to get through to be certified. All of which sounded horrific, you know. <laughs> Oh, come on, it's not that bad. It's all like, pretend you don't have oxygen. Take your mask off and put it back on. You know, all these <laughs> things that you don't want to do when you're scuba diving. <laughs> you don't want to have to do. No, exactly. And we were going to be doing it in the end of November when there was like snow on the ground. So it was also freezing. So when he was describing all this, I turned to one of the instructors who was going and I said, isn't there anything fun we could do while we're down there? Like if we're going to be down there doing all these horrible things. And he thinks for a moment and he goes, hmm, well, I suppose we could feed the eels. Feeding the eels. That sounds like a great idea. Uh-oh. So d- during the certification, he comes and gets me and Derek and he swims off with us and we follow him to where he knows the eels live. And he has a little tiny bag of shrimp. And the eels apparently know him. Apparently he feeds these eels a lot. And they see him coming and they came out. And they were wrapping around him, sitting on his lap, and they seemed like house cats. Where the, you know how a <laughs> house cat will sometimes like trail their tail under your arm just as a way of touching you. Yeah, they were doing that same sort of thing. They would take shrimp from me, but they were much more cautious about me. Like I don't know this person. Mm, I'm not sure I want to take her shrimp. But with him, they were like, "Can I go home with you? Can we kiss? Can we make out?" They love this guy. <laughs> And it was so interesting to see, yeah, that they had this sort of tender-hearted vibe to them also. Anyway, enough eel talk. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew? I mean, one of the things that kind of raised it in my mind as far as this show is concerned is we always think of big things that ground us. You move to a new place and you get an apartment, you set that apartment up so that you feel comfortable there, you know, and that makes you feel like, okay, I can live here. But sometimes it's just little tiny things like a baby eel where you figure out where it lives that makes you feel like you are more familiar with a place. Mm-hmm. It just made me wonder if some things like that sprung to your mind or to others of you who are listening, if there's anything that pops to mind too that are, is something tiny that grounds you? Um, I honestly don't know if I can think of anything to do with Rome, but I know having been in other cities... I've noticed that. It might be more of a vacation thing. Maybe it's more of a vacation thing. Maybe it's more of like a wistful, I could live here. I feel like that a lot. A lot of what Lori Lee was talking about on episode tips, she said, you know, find your place, find your local cafe, your diner, your restaurant. I mean, that's not a tiny, tiny, tiny thing. Like it's not as tiny as a baby eel. But... <laughs> well, it doesn't have to literally be tiny. <laughs> um, I guess like seemingly insignificant to like the larger picture. Yeah. 
definitely like finding a little cafe that you think is just wonderful. It makes me always be like, I could totally live here. I could just see myself. I could see myself living here. I could see myself coming here every day. I don't know if that qualifies as being a little thing. I remember when I first moved to Rome, I moved to Rome in September of 2004. I came to Rome in May of 2004 to sing in my third cousin's wedding. So I was there for like a week and a half in May and I knew or I was pretty much sure I was going to be moving to Rome. I hadn't made the full decision yet, but like that was kind of the trip that that really made my mind up. It was kind of like the perfect moment in my life to move abroad. If you remember, you know, I had just broken up with someone, a long-term someone, didn't really have any kind of career of any kind. <laughs> I wasn't locked in in any kind of a rent situation. So I was very free. And so I'd been thinking about it. I'd been thinking about it and ruminating and ruminating. And then I got this invitation to come and sing in this wedding. So I was like, well, yeah, I'm going to come, you know, make a trip out of it. And I was in Rome with the bride's father. We were in Trastevere. And I had never been to Trastevere before. Even though I'd been to Rome many times, or not many times, but a couple of times, I'd actually never been to Trastevere. And I can remember exactly where I was. I was on Via Natale del Grande, which is just around the corner from where you and Derek stayed. And he was like this uncle of mine, say second uncle, if that's a word. He was using the ATM on that street. And I had talked to a woman on the airplane coming in, an older woman who was an expat who lived in Rome. And she said, oh, you're moving to Rome. You should live in Trastevere. That's where all of the expats live. That's where all the Americans live. And I had never heard of this neighborhood before. So anyway, here I am. I'm in Trastevere, and it's first time, and my uncle's in the bank, and I'm sort of just standing on the street. And it's not the most beautiful spot in Trastevere. No. There are many, many other little tiny, narrow, cobblestone streets that are much prettier. It was enough. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. enough. The little park and the distance and little cross streets. And I remember that moment like it was yesterday. It's kind of like recorded in my brain it's photographed and I remember thinking yeah I'm gonna live here I'm gonna live in this neighborhood yeah and it's so funny because I ended up living just around the corner from there yeah it's so interesting I was thinking too with you going ahead before you end up moving and I came to your wedding about a year before a little more than a year before moving to Rome myself and of course at that point I didn't have any idea that I would ever move to Rome yeah but As part of your wedding, you had given all of us visitors a little tiny book of all your favorite spots. Mm -hmm. And we had gone to a lot of those spots while we were there for the wedding. And when we did make the decision to go and to move to Rome, I felt like I already had this little tiny book of here are the places you can go. Yeah. Oh, well, and thank I already, you. And I already had my favorite. I already knew that I loved Dar Poeta as a pizza place. And I was like, great, I get to go have Dar Poeta again, you know? Or every week. <laughs> yeah, every week, like twice. <laughs> I felt like I already knew what restaurants and cafes I was going to hang out at. And of course, I expanded that as I lived there. I would still say that the core of the places you highlighted were still the core of a lot of our behavior Aww. in the year that we lived there. Oh, so. that's nice to hear. So, yeah. I mean, for you, though, I could see how, like, you love cookies so much, for instance, which makes you sound like a fiend, but you love cookies. I could see if you discovered the perfect little bakery, which you did, interest every, that would be like a grounding thing. Like, this particular cookie is great. Yeah. And I can now have that anytime I want. You know, it's funny that you 
just you mentioning this, it kind of gives him this little spark of excitement, if that's a word, like the newness. It is a word. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I know. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I didn't realize that excitement was a word. Thank you for that. There you go. Sarcasm does work on the radio. See, Katie? So, you know that newness that you get at the beginning of a relationship, or I think just as much at the beginning of being and living in a new place, you know, obviously that fades. It fades in both situations. And just when you said those words, I was thinking, I have not gone out and tried to discover anything new in my city in so long. And I miss that. Like, I miss being in a new city. And I wonder, again, I'm going to hearken back to that episode, episode tips. Lori Lee talks about that as well, because she is sort of a serial expat, I think we could call her. And she kind of says about 18 months in, she starts itching to get going again. And I wonder if that's what it is, the newness of, oh my gosh, look at this wonderful bakery. Look at this adorable cafe. I remember when I was in Ghent, I think it was Ghent. Yeah. It's like a city, you would say in Italian, da scoprire, a city to be discovered. It's just a place that's asking to have its secrets discovered. But the thing is, you eventually discover them all. And now, maybe not in Rome, because Rome is too big, or Paris, or London, but probably all of the secrets of your neighborhood you're going to discover. Especially if you're in a small city like Ghent, you're going to eventually find all of the good places. I find this a lot working for the magazine. You know, I write for a touristy magazine about Rome, and <laughs> I've been writing for it for, I don't know how many years, six years, something like that, six or seven years. My boss who opened the magazine, it's been like 23 years. I have such a hard time coming up with new things to write about. I'm like, you know, that secret place that nobody knows about. It's like, okay, there's no secret place that nobody knows about. And it's like my constant goal to find something that my boss has never heard of and that he doesn't know. Mm. And even in a city as big as Rome, sometimes you can kind of discover it all. So I miss that. Just you saying that just kind of made me feel like, oh, I kind of miss being new again. Yeah, totally get that. You must really feel like that being in the city that you grew up in, which is also not a huge city. I mean, it's not a tiny city, but it's not like LA or London. I think it's doubly that for me because I've spent over a decade, I don't really know how long, as a reporter and a journalist in this city. So not only have I noticed everything, but I've also like covered nearly everything. So I think for me, that does tend to take some of the mystery away. It's not, I know stuff about stuff I don't want to know anything about, you know, like city council meetings or the fight over rebuilding the Seattle waterfront. I could have passively let that go by. For me personally, I could have lived my whole life letting the people who care take care of that. And seeing what they come up with. I didn't need to know the ins and outs of everything in that situation. So I think for me, that's often why I start to feel bored of the city. It's not only that I have been everywhere, seen everything. It's also that I have looked in depth at so many of those things. But that said, I think I've mentioned on this show before, the number one question I have always gotten asked in regards to this show in regards to the one I produced for public radio for nine years, 
is how do you keep coming up with stuff to talk about <laughs> or stuff to examine, stuff to investigate. And I do think that if you're a curious person in general, there's always something to talk about. Well, yeah. No topic comes to an end. There's always a, a way to look at it in a slightly different angle. I hear what you're saying. I'm like stuck in this sort of like, I'm tired. I'm bored of this. I don't want to do this anymore because I know too much about this city. But I also can still find things to write about, <laughs> to talk about. But no baby eels on the streets of Seattle, I'm guessing. I think part of the problem, too, of living in a place for a really long time is you get too into your habitual patterns. Like you've discovered the places you go, mm-hmm. and those are just the places you go. Yeah. And so you actually end up living within this very small box. So I know I could go to this park, couldn't find a baby eel probably because that would be highly unusual, but I could find a place where there were a whole bunch of little crabs doing stuff, posturing, you know, eating stuff. (laughs) And I could sit there and watch it. I just think that you get into a habit pattern of not doing that. Yeah, I I feel like Rome has so many amazing restaurants. And... Claudio and I, or, you know, my friends or whoever I was out with, like we'd always go to the same restaurants and there's something great about that, having your local restaurants and, you know, having the place where like the owners know you and chatting with you and that's great. But we so often were like, oh, we should try this place. We should try that. But, you know, we just would never do it when it came time to like, where are we going to eat tonight? You know, because before we had Aurelio, we used to eat out a lot. <laughs> like, oh, where are we going to eat? Where should we go? Let's go to the Greek place, which was across the street from us. Or let's go to Dada Poeta, which was the farthest, probably the other side of Trastevere. You know, they're like our favorite five spots. And yeah, they were all in Trastevere, I think. And, and, and it was great. It was really lovely to get really deep into our neighborhood. But now that I'm living outside of the center and I have a kid, so it's more of a challenge to go out in the city, I wish that I had done a little bit more experimenting. Yeah. Instead of going to Dajildo every other week for five years, you right. know, I could have spent some time getting to know some other restaurants. I get that. Yeah. It's kind of the same issue, just on a restaurant theme. <laughs> there is a book. We've talked about this book that I like called Third Wish by Robert Fulgham before. But in that book, there's a game that's meant to break you out of always turning right. Like, I always turn right on the street. It's sort of a game to try to make you end up somewhere different. It's called Left Right Surprise. Have I told you about it before? You have. You have. But but remind us. Remind us. Okay. Really briefly, you go out with a friend. You pick a friend, or you could even do this with Claudio. Pick a friend. You go out. You start walking. As you're walking... Your companion, whoever starts first, is supposed to start telling you something that they know something about you might not suspect that they know a lot about. Okay. So, for instance, I could say to you, uh, Tiffany, you probably know everything about me, but (laughs) Tiffany, when I was growing up, my mother collected the different versions of the book Cinderella for me. I know like 45 different cultural versions of how people in different parts of the world told that story. I'm going to tell you what the Native Americans said. Something like that. And then I can tell you that tale. Whenever I come to the end of whatever thought I'm on, or you decide that it's time to change the subject, we switch directions. Like if we were going to the right, we take a left. Does this make sense? Absolutely. So we turn in the opposite direction. So then you would start telling me something that I didn't know as much about. When you get to the end of that, and maybe it's like 10 blocks later, maybe it's just one block later, 
I used to love the color green. Now I don't anymore. You know, turn. <laughs> uh, so you're doing that. So you're telling stories while you're turning left, turning right. And the surprise is you stop doing it when you come to an interesting place that you both want to investigate. A cafe you've never seen before. You've ended up at a park, a bench that looks like it's fun to sit on. But anyway, the idea is that you end up in a spot that you weren't planning to get to because you were distracted while you were talking. I love that. I love that. That would actually work really well downtown Rome. It would work really well in downtown Rome, yeah. Because there's so many windy little back streets and stuff. Yeah. I think, I'm not positive this is another rule, but I think if you were to come to a dead end, then you'd have to stop talking about whatever you were talking about and change the topic. So anyway, we could all try that. Grab a friend. Go play Left Bright Surprise. Get a copy of Third Wish, because it's great. When Derek and I lived in Rome, we did Adventure Day, remember, where where every other Thursday the opposite person had to plan an adventure and the other person just had to go on it without knowing what we were doing? See, can I just say I love that. See, I love surprises. I love that idea, but Claudio hates surprises, even good surprises, like happy surprises. I can be like, I have a surprise for you. It's going to be awesome. You're going to love it. He'll be like, what is it? It's a surprise. Do you have to tell me what it is? Tell me what it is. <laughs> well, it doesn't have to, you don't have to think of it like a surprise. It's just like uh, that person is going to plan where you're going. That's all. Yeah, but he'll want to know. He'll want to know where, where that is <laughs> so, he can plan, so he can plan. and. Okay, you can tell him the night before. He's just not allowed to veto. Right, right. How about that? <laughs> well, I, I happen to love surprises, but one thing I do that I feel like it's out of character for me because I feel like I should be a spontaneous person. I feel like... Like, that's how I would describe myself. But the truth is, actually, I'm very much a creature of habit. Yeah, me too. And I'm definitely the type of person who I always drive to work in the exact same way. I don't ever change the way I go. I like to do things the same day to day. I love to, like, do, like, big, grand, spontaneous gestures. Like, one time I went to Belgium with three hours notice. I literally bought the ticket at like 3 p.m. and the flight was for 6 p.m. and I was just like had an hour to pack and then went to the airport. So wow, yeah, awesome. Yeah, that was awesome. There was a reason. I had someone, I had a good friend there who was singing and uh, doing a concert, and she was like, "You should come visit. I have got space." And I was like, "Really? Are you serious?" She's like, "Yeah, come." And I'm like, "Let me look at the flights. Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm coming." <laughs> wow, cool. So I have done spontaneous things in my life, and I like to do them, but they have to be out of the ordinary. They have to be kind of extraordinary moments. My day-to-day life, I would not like it if um, some people have jobs where they're like in a different place every day. They have no sort of sense of continuity, and I think I would have a hard time with that. Mm. Like I need something to be the same from day to day, at least the schedule, like the hours, because then I feel like you can't really plan your life if you like one day you're, you know, you're working at 4 p.m. and the next day you're working at 9 a.m. Like it's just, I don't like, don't do well with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the freelance life I'm in right now where people ask me how it's going and I say, well, I haven't quite found the rhythm that works yet. Yeah. Because it's summer and all these people keep coming relatives are coming to town there's family trips it's It's stressful so you kind of get a rhythm going and then you leave again yeah it's not stressful for me it just does make me go I don't really know what the rhythm of my freelance working life is yet I think some people really thrive on that like they love it when things are totally different one day to the next and and then other people just don't I find that if I don't have structure to my day I don't get anything done so right now I'm 
I'm off of work. My office is closed for three weeks, like it or not. I'm not going anywhere because A, Claudia is working and B, we just spent a month in America. So <laughs> we're not going to be doing any major traveling right now. So Aurelio is obviously not in school. So I've got him to take care of. So it's not exactly a vacation, but I have found that if I'm going to be able to get through this three weeks and actually accomplish something that I want to accomplish, I have to have a schedule for myself. And so I've basically put myself on a schedule. I feel better when I do that. I feel more secure. And it's so funny. They say that babies love to be on a schedule. Like you should always put your baby down at the same time for their nap and feed them at the same time. And because it makes them feel secure because they know what's coming. They know what to expect since they have so little control over their lives, if they know that they're going to be fed at a certain time, it makes them feel good. And I must be very infantile because I'm the same way. No, I think that might be a natural human tendency. Yeah. I think it is. And I, I don't know for sure, but I would imagine that in many ways, it's the same in the animal kingdom as well. That they're not going far afield, you know, they're not like Nemo. <laughs> Well, I think there are... Crossing the open ocean. Well, I think it depends. They do sometimes. I think it depends. I think there's some animals who... Well, they migrate, but they're going to similar... They're following uh, patterns that are set many times. Yes, but there are some animals who have a nest, and that is where they live, and there are other animals who sleep in a different place every night. So that just depends on the species of animals. Yeah. I'm just... I guess I'm just saying that I don't think that it's just a human trait either. I think that ritual no. is sort of a what a lot of creatures need to be able to survive and thrive. Yeah, and I think even if like a monkey doesn't sleep in the same tree every night, he's always sleeping in a tree. He's not like, oh, I think tonight I'm going to like <laughs> dig underground and sleep down with the rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> Unless he meets so, yes. a good friendly rabbit who's like, come on over. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's what happens in my imaginary world. Um <laughs> <laughs> now you have a whole new character to add to your imaginary wildlife friends. Right. Your baby eel. Can I ask you a personal eel. question? Oh, God. Sure. Did you name the eel? No, I didn't. Oh, I'm I, I actually rarely name uh, wild creatures that I encounter. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess that would be that would be infantilizing them. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Turning them into Disney creatures <laughs> instead of respecting their wild state. Hey, what's up, Stan? Yeah. <laughs> Arbitrary. <laughs> Plus he's underwater. He can't hear me anyway. Uh, so we should end. But I do have one final thought about you talking about, you know, I should have not gone to that same restaurant every other week. I should have branched out. I can post the article in our notes, but I recently wrote an article, it was just published today, as a matter of fact, about the demise of the People's Pub, which was the restaurant that I worked in when I was in my early 20s. And it's been around for 17 years, and after 17 years, it's closing its door. And I, it is one of those places that was ritualistically a place that I went, although not as much in recent years. I do think that part of those rituals of we choose these places that we constantly go when one of those places is now done, like yeah. the People's Pub will be on Saturday night, I don't regret all the times I went there and didn't go somewhere else. Do you know what right, I mean? That, yeah, of course. I met a girl there last night named Jess who was one of the original servers with me. We were often worked the same nights. 
And we were <sighs> sitting there. She hadn't been there in seven, seven years. And this was her like last chance to stop by before it was over. And so we met and we had dinner. And we were trading stories back and forth about the things that we could remember. Like, do you remember the time the bartender jumped on the bar to try to back that aggressive woman down? Or do you remember... Uh, when I heard story, when I got so drunk and here on my 21st birthday, people had to carry me out, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And in writing this article, I had, I had been thinking of all of these different stories and what to include in this to tell the tale of what that place was and what it means for the larger city that it's going away. So I was telling her that I said, oh, I thought of so many of these stories and I had to just pick like, what am I going to go with and what am I going to cut? And she just had that kind of wistful pause and she looks around the restaurant and she said, there are just so many things that happened here. There are just too many stories to even tell. We do become a part of the places that we ritually go to. And that you have a ton of stories that you could tell about what happened at your favorite restaurants or the conversations that were had there. You know, so I don't know. I go back and forth between wanting to be extremely experimental and being extremely sentimental. Well, I feel like you, yeah, well, we're both sentimental. We've We've established that yeah. long ago. Well established. But I think that you in particular, I think both of us have a, a very strong connection to senses of place. When we are in a place that we become, that it's very important that you're in that physical spot. Whereas other people might say, it doesn't matter where that conversation took place. The point is that we, you and I had that conversation or that we talked about this particular thing that doesn't matter where, but I think you feel very much connected to wherever, where the, the place where something happened. And I think me too, maybe to a lesser extent, but that's probably why I can get behind that. Yeah. And I think it's different when you work in a place, spend so many hours. It's sort of similar to when they ripped down the theater you and I used to act in. Oh my gosh, don't even say those words. I know, don't but it wasn't like we words. were walking there and going to see the plays that were going on there now as adults. But still. Because we were past that period. So there is some strange value also to having a place just exist. Like yeah. I could go stand there and stare at it if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. that part of what I was saying in the article is that you, you, we can't help but take things for granted. My final line of the article is something like, all of a sudden, one day you wake up and you realize that come and visit any time has turned into come and visit for the last time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how that fits with the baby eel, but it is something that I've been thinking about in the last couple of days, what it is to lose a place. But also, yeah, exactly what you're talking about, this boredom that comes with always being in the same place. For instance, I took a trip recently. I came back and I said to Derek, they have such good restaurants there. We have nothing like that here in Seattle. <laughs> he said, "He said you're a cheapskate who goes to all the dive bars in Seattle to eat. We have world-renowned food here. You just never eat it. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> that is a really, really good point. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> yeah, because when you're on vacation, you are more willing to go to places like that, search out the best you know, restaurant in the city. Whereas when you're in your own hometown, you're like... Like you look at this, that's too expensive. Let's go somewhere else. Yeah. You're like, I don't want to pay more than $8 for whatever I'm eating. <laughs> you know, it's like that. <laughs> if possible. Anyway, wow, this is a long episode. We should leave it there. Okay. We can pick it up again. If you guys have thoughts about any of what we've been talking about, uh, I'd love to hear about it. Email bittersweetlife at mail.com. M-A-I-L.com. 
Until us. Find us on Twitter at Bittersweet Pod or on Facebook at Bittersweet Life Podcast. Yes. And maybe, maybe we can spend some time posting pictures of some of the places that we ritualistically go to and others can join us in posting pictures of places they ritualistically go to. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. That's a great idea. And I tried to get a picture of that baby eel, but um, alas, he was just too small to see. I can post the picture of my foot next to the tide pool that he's in. And if one of you can spot him, (laughs) I would love it. But I just could not get a picture where I felt like you could actually see him very well. Wow, he was tiny. You know, they blend. They're camouflaged. That's a whole other topic we could talk about. <laughs> All right, so we'll leave it there. Until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Bye. Hi there. It's Katie again. Here you thought I was gone already, but you were wrong. I'm here to tell you the good news, which wouldn't seem like that good of news to most people, but I went back through my pictures looking for that baby eel. And I found that I had captured him in one of the pictures. And so I blew it up. He's still pretty hard to spot. But if you visit our Twitter page and you visit our Facebook page, which Tiffany just gave the addresses to, you might be able to spot him too. And remember to send in your pictures and stories of the tiny things that keep you grounded. We'd love to hear what you have to say. And while you're thinking about the show, surf on over to iTunes. Give us a good rating. You don't have to write anything more than, I like this show five stars. Uh, This show's pretty good. Four stars. Whatever you think. Those ratings really help other people find the show. And tell your friends, won't you? Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.